We had done one piece of this bigger thing, and he is basically building this bigger thing, and we can be a piece of that puzzle. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I continue to track significant happenings in the progressive political technology ecosystem. A new company has quietly emerged from what they call stealth mode. It's called Helm. It's been building data and technology for some time and has made some acquisitions as well, including Organizer, CrowdScout, the Tuesday Company, and assets from Timshell. And leaders from each of those acquired companies have previously appeared on this podcast. My guests today, Shola Farber and Michael Luciani of Tuesday Company, are now able to be public about the sale of their enterprise to Helm. And they wanted to take the opportunity to tell the story of their company in some detail, hoping that it will be useful to other founders in the civic tech space. Tuesday was a progressive technology company that built a tool called Team for Relational Organizing. Shola and Michael went through all the ups and downs of any startup, from idea and market research to building tech, selling their software, raising money, and ultimately selling their enterprise. I interviewed them a few weeks ago, and that's the episode I'm releasing today, and also just the other day, which will be a continuation episode out Friday. I appreciate Shola and Michael's interest in describing their journey thus far. So after our sponsor, the first part of my conversation after acquisition of Tuesday Company by Helm. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. How do you guys want to have this conversation? From our conversation before, Nathaniel, it was clear to me that there is a really interesting story to tell for people who are interested in building a business in this ecosystem to learn about sort of the arc of our company, where we started, how we grew, the changes that we made and along the way, strategic decisions, how we found a you know, the exit that we found, what the process of selling the company was like, then essentially what's happening moving forward. So I kind of see it as three parts, but I imagine they're not all the same length of time. And we can, we can kind of go chronologically through that story and you can stop us for questions. And Michael in particular can talk a, a good amount about how the project is being built into what TechCo is doing and the kind of future and how we're taking the lessons we learned and bringing them forward. I would imagine the like kind of postscript call we can do in May will have like an even more 
thorough. Okay. So when you talk about three segments, what, what do you see them as exactly? The journey of the company, the process of the sale, and like what happens after the sale, basically. I think the core interest that you're suggesting is the same as the one that I have, which is about, you know, how can your story be useful to other progressive political entrepreneurs in the tech space? I think it's going to be interesting. This space is important to all of us and how you evolve yourself into it and juggle the different responsibilities to the space, to your company, to your own wallet, to, you know, to your employees, to your clients. I mean, that's all, that's all part of it, right? How do you get that right? How do you leave the right legacy? How do you keep going on and and not, not have to leave it if you don't want to, you know, these are all, they're all challenging things. So why don't I just start by saying, can you each introduce yourselves? Um, been on the show before, but um, just say a little about who you are and say a little bit about what the product is of Tuesday. And then we'll get into sort of the company stuff. My name is Michael Luciani. I am the one of the founders and the CEO of the Tuesday company. Before that, you know, had worked in policy and then worked on the Clinton campaign in Michigan in 2016. You know, the Tuesday company really is in the business of making technology for relational organizing and for digital organizing. So our, our main product is called Team, and Team is a way for organizations to build a community of their volunteers and then prompt those people to take you know meaningful actions that can be done from a smartphone so you know the canonical example is like can we supplement your door-to-door canvassing program with an app that will sync your volunteer cell phone contacts against your target list and say like oh wow shola <laughs> you know nathaniel like instead of a stranger going to his house will you just text him um so that's what team does in, in a way that a campaign can prompt and track and manage. And then we also um, own Vote With Me, which is more of a direct-to-consumer version of the same thing, which syncs your contacts against the voter file, and, and you can help um, make sure your friends turn out to vote. Well, thank you for having us back on the podcast. We are really big fans of these conversations, and it's a pleasure to sit down with you again. Uh, My name is Shola Farber. I am a co-founder of the Tuesday Company. I originally uh, worked in the policy world, spent some time on the business side at places like Politico before becoming an organizer and joining the community of organizers doing work across the country. I came to the Tuesday Company as a chief operating officer, helping really build the business and honestly did everything under the sun for this company. I'm really excited to, to talk about that journey. Companies in almost any space, you start it and it doesn't make it and it goes away. It is pretty rare to build a company that goes on to today or that has an exit uh, in a positive way where you sell it and becomes part of a greater enterprise. And both of those uh, you know, are, are things that people aspire to. What was the world like when you were starting this company? What was missing in the space that you tried to create? What was the competition like? What was the ecosystem that you entered? For us, you know, we had the most experience organizing 
working on the ground in Michigan on the 2016 campaign. So a lot of, I think the way we thought about the space was what did we have and what didn't we have working on that campaign? And for an organizer on the Clinton campaign, you know, there was a program for mass emails and mass texting, um, but there was not really a way for us to involve volunteers in anything other than door knocks and phone calls. And just kind of playing around uh, with a group of volunteers, you know, it became apparent that these were valuable activities, you know, that if we really wanted to recruit more people to come to our events, of course, we should like post on social media or have people text their friends and invite their friends. And while that was talked about as a best practice, it wasn't something that the campaign was tracking or was part of their metrics. And so it was something that was often left behind. You know, after the campaign ended, it was late 2016. Donald Trump had just beaten Hillary Clinton. Like, I think I spent a week in my bed depressed. But after we got over that, there was this huge energy of like, man, what can we do? How can we contribute to helping the progressive political tech ecosystem to improve and to grow? And our thought was, you know, we really want to incorporate this ability for volunteers to be able to contribute on their cell phone and in the same ways that they would normally connect with their friends um, by texting them, by posting on social media. And we thought that it was a no-brainer that this would be a great addition to canvassing and phone banking. And that it seemed to us that the big reason it hadn't come to the fore of political work was that there wasn't a good structure for that to all be tracked and to be put into a CRM and for organizers to get credit for it. Um, and so that's what we kind of set out in the direction to build. And, and that was refined you know, through a process of kind of testing and iterating in those early days of 2017. In the beginning, we were really thinking about how do we bring the best practices of organizing building trusted relationships and empowering people and meeting people where they are, how do we bring that to the digital space? And so Michael's absolutely right. How can we fit it all together on the back end from a data perspective so that it can be part of the metrics that the organization is tracking? Because that's how you can bring it to scale. Originally, we thought we were going to build this big company that would have a lot of different arms, content creation, consulting, relational organizing, digital ads, all of the pieces in one place. In 2017, we chased special elections and tried to figure out which piece to start with. Um, we spent time in Chicago working on an aldermanic race. We spent time in Georgia with a PAC working on John Ossoff's race. We spent time in Southern California, basically chasing all the special elections that were happening and figuring out what value we could add to the market, what didn't exist. And we ended that year a part of the Higher Ground Lab's first cohort um, with a really strong sense that technology that could make the connection between volunteers and organizations was going to be really critical to the future of organizing. You weren't the only people with ideas around this. Who else like, did you have to keep your eye on? Yeah, I, I remember like we we had never heard of Outreach Circle at that point in time called Voter Circle until after we had applied um, 
to higher ground labs and gotten in and met Sangeeth like at the first meeting. We're like, Oh, like, what do you do? And he (laughs) told us like, Oh, like we help people, you know, email their friends on behalf of campaigns. And we were like, dang, we help people text their friends on behalf of campaigns. Like that's very similar. (laughs) Um, And, you know, I think that for us, we always had this focus on, community building between volunteers and really on storytelling. I think a lot about this um, actually from, I think, a relatively strange lens, which is I am eight years sober and I go to AA meetings like all the time, you know, and AA is a fascinating case study in organizing. You know, it's like millions and millions of people across the world in all of these meetings that are entirely decentralized. I thought a lot about, you know, what makes those communities work and what makes them helpful to the participants and and able to really take this meaningful collective action of like helping other people get sober. And I think a huge part of that is vulnerability and the vulnerability to kind of share your story in a Marshall Gans way where you are telling the story of yourself and making it a story of us and, and figuring out like how you want to interact with the wider world. And that was really a big reason why we had initially thought we were going to also be content creators or also, you know, have a user generated content component of team. And that was never really something we brought to fruition because the way we slide into the ecosystem was as a tech vendor and people don't usually want their tech vendors to also, you know, be their digital ads creators. Uh, or if they do, like they're thinking of digital ads in a very different way than we were kind of thinking of digital content for communities. Uh, so that, that came to fruition a lot more in how we trained our clients and how we marketed our product and how we were able to promote the best use cases of team but also it really informed our product design in a way that I think is still relatively unique to this day. But there are now lots of people who have started to build and think about, you know, the power of relational organizing and digital organizing. Something that Shola and I were talking about last night was like who the buyer is for this and how that's changed. I think, I thought that was really interesting if you want to tell that story, Shola. Absolutely. It's one of the things that I I have spent a lot of time thinking about, especially in 2020, as the whole world changed uh, very quickly. In 2017, when we first brought our product to the market, there wasn't a market searching for what we were selling. We had a vision for how organizing should work in the 21st century. And we were really trying to bring that to the right people to inspire them to give it a shot. Um, We pitched campaign managers, we pitched digital directors, we built relationships with consulting firms that were focused on ad buying. Um, We talked to field people, but there wasn't, not only was there not a line item for the kind of product that we were creating and the type of organizing we were doing, there wasn't a buyer. By 2018, when the D-Trip came to us and asked if we could help them flip the house, at that point, they had... Uh, created a position for someone who would oversee distributed organizing. That person reported to the field director and was sort of a bridge between digital and field. By 2019, we started to see mobilization directors come about. And in 2020, those were substantial positions on the campaign with a lot of power. And so I think 
we were at the forefront of this movement to modernize the kind of work that we're doing. Um, it's something that we're really proud of. I think it's one of the biggest contributions, honestly, that we've made to to the space and um, hopefully to, to democracy more broadly. Well, tell me about some of the milestones as you went from idea to your recent sale of the company. Between kind of founding the company and getting to a minimum viable product and being part of then the first cohort of Higher Ground Labs. Like I think that Higher Ground Labs is a huge part of the story of the company. And, and we may not have appreciated it at the time, but getting into Higher Ground Labs was a big milestone because none of us were previous entrepreneurs. You know, we didn't really know like how tech startups worked and the infrastructure of higher ground, both formally like mentors and capital and direct kind of introductions to clients, but also informally just to be part of a community of people who were also entrepreneurs and like didn't think that we were crazy people was huge. Who knows if we would have made it through that really fragile, very early period without it. And then I think the the next big milestone was probably, you know, after we had completed the Higher Ground Labs program and were selling team in the market was was probably uh, the contract with the D-Trip. I completely agree with you, Michael. Higher Ground Labs was really instrumental. I think that the first instance of their tangible value was in convincing us to work in the Virginia state house races in 2017. So um, we took on a handful of clients. At this point, we had done about a year's worth of R&D. We had a couple of case studies and ideas. We really didn't have a product built at the beginning of the summer. We hired some phenomenal interns. Our CTO oversaw them and helped them build out the first version of our product. He was still working a different job and took a week off around Labor Day to build our integration with Van so that we could support some of Donica Rome and some other really phenomenal candidates in Virginia. And that was our first taste of what it was like to really be a part of the democratic ecosystem, to understand the the power dynamics and structures and decision-making between different levels of organizers and funders. Coming out of that, we, through Higher Ground, had an audience with the DTRIP and a bunch of other committees. Um, and they said, we really like what you're doing. We believe in the tech. You've built something powerful here. And we want to be a partner to build it out. And I think Every committee operates a little bit differently, and it depends on who's in charge at any given moment. But we had a really phenomenal experience working with them because the decision makers we were dealing with wanted to innovate. And they saw that if they didn't try absolutely everything, <laughs> they were going to leave votes on the table and, and potentially not achieve their goal of winning the House. So I think it was, you know, it was a huge challenge for us. We spent a lot of that winter testing to make sure I think our greatest fear and the thing that we were really adamant about with our co-founder, Charlie, our CTO, was that it absolutely could not break at critical moments, whether that was uh, before a primary election or on election day. Um, and so building a really strong base was a critical strategic decision that 
almost no one ever saw. It wasn't the app that volunteers were using. It wasn't the dashboard that staff were logging into on their computers. It wasn't any of the pretty front end work. It was all of the unsexy stuff on the back end that helped us earn that trust. So it, to me, what, when I'm listening to you talk about uh, a CTO using interns and about the fear about an application not uh, standing up when you need it to, that, that's entrepreneurship, right? You've got to create something with limited resources. You have to make something out of nothing. And any assistance that you can get, like the what you got with Higher Ground, like I remember back to early days of NGP when I was starting, I came into contact with a political fundraiser on our side who just made some introductions for me. The, the ecosystem was far less evolved, but the introductions that she made to me to members of Congress who then used my fundraising software, I don't know if the company would have gone forward without that. There were so many critical little steps along the way where other people met the entrepreneur and helped us go forward. Absolutely. If you want to talk about being scrappy uh, or entrepreneurship at its real core, I built that intern program before we had any funding. And as a leadership team, we really wanted to put our values first. We knew that if we were going to hire interns, we were going to give them real work. And if we were giving them real work, we wanted to pay them. We were not paying ourselves. So I worked with a bunch of universities that had programs that would fund interns. And we built the intern program before we got into Higher Ground Labs, before we knew if we had money to actually build this thing. It was all happening simultaneously in that spring. And it was crazy. I mean, I think if Higher Ground Labs had started five months later, I don't know if we would be here. Yeah. A lot of things are timing. A lot of things are luck, relationships, hard work, uh, good decisions, good people, the right hires, overcoming the wrong hires. I'm pretty happy if I make the the right hire half the time. I feel like that is stellar. (laughs) (laughs) I wrote down some lessons for us. (laughs) One of them for me by far is around hiring because it takes so much time, especially when you're a young company with just a couple staffers. They should talk to all the founders. It is a long process to hire right, but it pays dividends in spades. And you're building a culture and a community internally that's reflected for your staff. Even when we had to scale up, we hired maybe 10 people in the winter and spring of 2018. All of our hires came when we got the contract with the DTRIP. We hired full-time engineers, we hired designers, we hired product testers, we hired customer success folks so that we could actually build this training and onboarding process. That was really critical to our success with the committee, but also to the company that we were building. When you're building a company from small like this, a startup, there's multiple tracks going on at the same time. There's the product track. How is that coming along? There's the acquisition of clients. That's quite crucial to both improving the product and to bringing in revenue. There's kind of your growth as leaders. You know, how are you learning? How are you setting a vision? You have to come along with the company as you go. There's sort of the financial side. Are you bringing in money, whether by investment or by sales? All these things at the same time. 
Are you building the processes that you need internally to do the work in an efficient manner? Are you learning how to do it in a repeatable way? It's impossible to capture all of that complexity in in a few words, but like talk a little bit about how the evolution of the company in some of those threads. You know, we would really find that all of those things were related. Leading up to 2018, we we invested a lot in what we called client success. And so we brought on people to lead that effort. You know, this was a, a team that Shola built out. And what we found was that kind of what we talked about before, like this idea of using digital tools to do relational organizing or digital organizing was pretty nascent, especially for random congressional campaign X, Y, Z. And so having the ability to invest in training them, um, explaining you know how to use team, why to use team, how to fit it into their program was something that we saw as a long-term investment to try to get to a place where you know the space grew and where our list of you know buyers and advocates grew. We really agonized a lot over that decision. Like, do we want to like spend our money on client success instead of anything <laughs> anything else? More programmers, more sales, you exactly, know, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think it was it was really important, and I think it was the right decision long term, because there's a lack of centralized infrastructure in the world of campaigns. There's no real training hub. You have no idea what set of experiences someone's coming into a congressional campaign or any campaign with. So you've got to be able to to meet people where they are from from that perspective. You had a, a CTO, you had the two of you, you started to build out client success. What other parts of the company did you build out staffing-wise? Michael, Charlie, and I were the initial full-time co-founders, uh, along with Jordan Bernholtz, who was our chief product officer for the first several years. We had another co-founder who led our brand and creative direction. He also is a documentary filmmaker mostly. Um, and so this was his like full-time side hustle, as he joked. As we started to build our team, we first hired engineers. Um, our CTO was really adamant that, especially for our technical hires, diversity was going to be really critical. And so we made a really concerted effort to hire on the technical side, but really across the company, uh, hire people who looked like the folks we were trying to organize. Building a diverse team was important, and, and we did that. Uh, so we hired two engineers in the winter of 2018, and in the spring, we brought on a product manager, a product designer who became a front-end engineer, I guess ultimately three customer success people. On the money that you're spending to do this, where was that coming from? Was that coming from sales? Was that coming from having raised money? How much? And talk about that side of things. So over the course of our business, we raised about $4.3 million. And at different points in the company, that was covering our um, operational costs. In 2018, we were bringing in a good deal of revenue. And so 
we were thinking of that stage in our business as the the ramp up that we needed certainly to honor the contract with the D trip, but we also had clients coming to us for the nonprofit sort of advocacy side of organizing and the labor side of organizing. We didn't hire a sales team until the end of 2019. When we looked at this ecosystem and looked at the decision makers who are running programs, most of them started as organizers, or maybe they were fundraisers, but they, they, this is a place where lots of people really build a career. And so investing in training and building relationships with staffers in 2018 was really strategic. I joke every time I encounter someone who was a field director or an organizer in 2018 that, and they say, oh, I use team. I'm like so happy. It's like finding them out in the wild, you know? It's a really fun experience because there were, you know, a couple hundred people across the country, thousands of volunteers. We didn't know all of them. <laughs> it's part of this process of building a company, really, where you have this vision and it starts out really small. And if you're lucky, you get to build it out. When you raise that much money, you do that in return for something, right? You are generally sharing a, a portion of the company with those investors. How much did you have to give up? to get that kind of cash? And how did you allocate the stock among yourselves? What we did is we we split our equity evenly between founders. So you know, we were, in some ways, I think really lucky that all of us came to the company, came to the idea, same with our employees, with really the mission first and foremost. You know, working in the civic tech space means that you have a really strong kind of moral imperative to be like, hey, we're doing good for the world in a way we believe in. Um, And so I think that helps, you know, to align everyone's expectations when it comes to things that can be really tricky, like how do you split up equity or because profit maximization is not the first motive of at least like our founders or or our employees. And for our investors, we were able to raise, I think, four different times over the course of the four years of the company. Each time we had different terms and we were able to point to, you know, with each raise, what we wanted to do with that money. And then maybe a year later, come back and say, we did all, you know, all of these things. And this is the next set of challenges that we want to undertake. And um, this is how much we think we need to do it and do it well. And we were really lucky. And I think, again, we owe this to higher ground uh, in some sense. Like they were our first investor. And most of our subsequent investors came to us through higher ground, like they had, they themselves had invested in higher ground and had looked at, you know, the most interesting and successful companies from their first cohort and, and said, Hey, you know, we're happy to reinvest in, in those, those funders were also, you know, after a civic and democracy health oriented return, as much as a financial return, but a lot of them were themselves Silicon Valley tech founders. And so probably, you know, for parts, investments that they are interested in maximizing return, 
invest with whatever, like Sequoia or a venture, like a more tech-focused venture firm. So while everybody in the Higher Ground Labs ecosystem, you know, is for profit and and you know is working to generate a return on investment, every investor is also there for that impact. And so we we were, I think, just really fortunate to have that aligned set of expectations with our funders and and with our co-founders and our employees and i think it really helped us to you know see the forest for the trees and, and make kind of the big picture decisions that we thought would be best for the democratic party and the ecosystem as a whole and the company within that so does that mean that you were able to like keep you know collectively with the founders a controlling interest in the company even while raising that money, did you have to give up more than that? What was the share that you ended up having to sell? That's a really good question. I think it's a really important one as uh, for founders to consider as they're building building their businesses. It was important to us that we maintained a controlling stake in the business. It was also important to us that we were giving a piece of the company to our employees. So you asked about the structure. Our co-founders shared equal value in the company. And we set aside an employee pool very early because we wanted our staff to feel like they were a part of this um, and to have actual skin in the game. I think that's something, honestly, that we got asked about um, in later rounds by investors. And it, it seems like they appreciated it. You asked a question earlier that I think is is important and and a good thing for organizations to consider as they're starting out, which had to do with um, structure and repeatable processes. I see Michael smiling at this idea because it's one of the things that I have realized was really critical to our success. And it's something that when we were doing it, it didn't feel particularly special, honestly. It felt like the way to run the most efficient business for a really small team that was trying to have a really big impact. We had to uh, write things down and make conversations visible to everyone across the organization, um, make sure we were including the right people and setting up structures, whether they're meetings or uh, you know regular communications of various stripes across teams as we grew. Um, that was really, really important to to me, honestly, and it's one of the reasons that Michael and Charlie and the team asked me to join to begin with, um, was this idea that we had to build something out of nothing and that that would be the the way for it to work if something happened to one of us that the company could go on. And now as we've been acquired um, and we're integrating our systems and our processes with a much larger organization, having this history of decisions we made, how we made them, why we made them, a ton of training materials for onboarding staff as well as clients, that has proved to be really valuable. How would you say that you each grew through this process? Because my experience is you have to. I was forced to become a lot more organized and disciplined, for one. Shola spent a lot of time uh, helping me remember how important it is to take notes in meetings, for example. You know, we also 
went through, uh, I think our first year or first year and a half with kind of a collective decision-making structure, um, since we were all equal shareholders and it became apparent that that was really inefficient where you want need to get every co-founder on the phone together to talk through, you know, even relatively small decisions. You know, I had to kind of grow into the role of real CEO and talk with my co-founders about having more and more executive decision-making authority so that we could make decisions more quickly and respect people's time and leave each individual at the company to have more time to do the part of the business that they're responsible for well. And that confidence that comes with that and responsibility forced me, I think, to be very thoughtful and really pushed me to think about the long term and the big picture um, more so than I had in the, you know, in the beginning of the company. For me, I did what I understand most founders do in opposite. <laughs> so when we started this business, I was extremely risk averse. I think entrepreneurs are often pretty open to risk. Good entrepreneurs often try to keep risk to a minimum. Clearly, the whole trade has some risk to it. I have had an enormous amount of fun building this business. I loved working with Michael and our team. I did not ever dream of being a founder. It was not like my long-term hope and vision for my career. And I think part of that is that I was afraid. Um, of the risks in this, the personal risks and legal risks and being responsible for the company, but also the financial risks as an individual. And so I started out really risk averse and extremely careful. And I think working with my co-founders and having to take risks, having to grow things often faster than I personally was comfortable with, ended up being the right move for the business and was a really great learning experience for me. And now I, I'm actually like quite open to risk. <laughs> I'm uh, hopefully not too far on the opposite end of that spectrum. But I think the pendulum is swinging pretty fairly now. But that was probably the biggest thing. I also think I, related to risk, have a tendency to want to have communication occur in a really particular way. And it depends on, on what we're trying to communicate. But sometimes you don't get to make those decisions. Sometimes factors outside your control influence communication. As the company grows, there are more people who, of course, have their own thoughts and ideas and hopes and dreams that they're sharing with one another. And you have to be adapting with the sort of internal comm structures and organizational structures as it, as it grows. So that's one of the things that I am super grateful for because I think it's really helpful moving forward. I'm really curious about the role of raising money and how it shaped how you thought about risk and about how you thought about growth. Like for me, I didn't raise any money. I wrote the software that I put together myself. I sold it myself. I supported myself until I could hire on the revenue of the company and grew it way slower than, than you folks and your peers have done that have raised money. That bootstrapping helped me learn the market over time in a slower period, really. Do you feel like having raised money, you were less attentive to sales and it felt less 
crucial? Do you feel like you felt freer to be less tight with the money because it wasn't yours? Psychologically, how did that affect you and, and practically? I just talked a little bit about my my personal growth with relation to risk. Um, I'm an only child raised by a single parent who was an incredible parent and really, really wanted to be a parent. And I'm very fortunate, but we didn't have a lot of money growing up and I didn't have a safety net in my family if this didn't work, which put a very particular kind of pressure on my business partners. And they were really incredible in the beginning, honestly, in making sure I had enough ramen for lunch every day, you know? <laughs> but you guys weren't drawing a salary either. So that's part of it. At what point were you able to? When we got the investment from Higher Ground. And that really was the, the backstop for my ability to continue to do this. Like I had a very clear runway with savings. So I, I had worked on the business side at Politico. I quit that job to join the Clinton campaign. I took a... A 70% pay cut to join the campaign. Um, and then I had, I think, I don't know, six months, basically, something like that. That will concentrate the mind. I remember not sleeping because I had saved some money through grad school and I had to find people to buy my software at a certain point or else I was going to wipe myself out completely. Yeah, I will, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And, and I think that when we got that money from Higher Ground Labs, it gave us runway to figure out if we could build software that people would buy. At least for me, it never felt like my money. It felt like the money that I was shepherding to better the future of our democracy. And I was sort of given this responsibility. I remember a very, <laughs> in retrospect, a really valuable conversation with Michael early in our business. I don't remember precisely what I was doing, but I, I was running the the kind of business side of the company. So I was doing something in our finances. Maybe I was invoicing people, some accounting thing. And it was taking me a really long time. And Michael said, we have someone who can do this. And I said, yeah, but he has an hourly rate and it's so expensive and that's crazy. And he said, no, <laughs> your time is better spent doing something else. We can spend $100 an hour to get the person who is an expert to do this. And I had never spent $100 an hour of somebody's time to do anything before. That was like such a revolutionary idea for me. And it was really valuable as a benchmark for understanding my time is valuable for this business. And we have the resources to do things like pay an accountant to do the accounting. And so it, I, I really appreciate that. I don't think that raising money by any means makes it less stressful. <laughs> you know, I, I felt like being responsible for an investment, I think we worked harder because we wanted to really, you know, live up to the confidence that had been placed in us. And we also had to learn how to work smarter, right? And saying like, okay, now that we do have a little bit of resourcing, like how can we make sure that every hour spent by each person is spent in the best possible way? So what else should I understand about your journey to get us to the place where you're making a decision about whether or not to sell this and to whom? On the topic of investment, a lot of our investors were really concerned with the electoral outcomes for 2018 and for 2020. So, you know, there was a pressure to accelerate 
kind of the traction and growth that we had on the revenue side and the business side. But there was an equal pressure to kind of expand and accelerate upon the impact that we could have in getting more Democrats elected. You know, it's a tough thing to try to balance both of those. Both have the potential to be overwhelmingly big goals. That was part of what made it so fun and what helped spur us to grow you know, both of those lines as quickly as we could. But I think it also kind of helps to contextualize the timeline. Like when we started the company, you know, we kind of were coming off of the 2016 election as sore losers in some sense, and like really wanted to help a lot of Democrats win in 2018 and 2020. And so, you know, being able to, to work with the D-trip on their red to blue races and, and taking back the House in 2018, work with you know large national nonprofits and with the presidential candidates uh, in the primary. Like those were the goals that we had set out with as much as anything else. So I think that also helped us feel like 2020 was a really good place to put a bookmark in our story and figure out what the next chapter was going to be, both from like our personal perspective and the perspective of our investors. Shola, what's your answer to that? There's two two best practices that I want to make sure that we share with you that feed into this answer. The first is that we had quarterly leadership retreats for our the entire life of the company. And we did that because we were growing really fast. We were pushed on this timeline that election cycles run on and that young companies run on, honestly. So we set aside a couple days every quarter to talk through our strategic priorities, how we were spending our time, if we were still walking towards our North Star or if we had drifted and if that drift was the right direction. And I think that was really critical to our ability to be successful over a long period of time, especially with several people at the helm or in leadership positions at at the organization. One of the things coming out of that, those retreats that were really important for us was a set of goals for the company. And each of those goals had a different key performance indicator or metrics that we were tracking. One of the goals that we had always on our list was to have the option to be acquired. And this is something that our co-founder, Jordan, advocated for very early on, he felt that creating the space for that option would be a good indicator that we were building a sustainable business and that we were doing the business side of things right. If we've built a good company, people are going to be interested in it. And so we always had that at the bottom of our list. I think that the structure of our equity, of our vesting was a little bit longer than 2020. So we definitely had the electoral timeline, but we were imagining that we would, if we were going to have acquisition conversations, we would have them after the election. But uh, back to that timing thing, you can't always make these choices. And so one of our investors introduced us to a prospective acquirer in June. Um, It's a company pretty far outside of the realm of work that we normally do or were involved in, but still in the like kind of policy space more broadly. And that prompted us to say, is now the right time? And if it is the right time, what are the criteria that we care about? What's most important for a successful exit? So I think Michael just spoke about how 
we were really mission driven and oriented around building a more participatory democracy around electoral outcomes, movement building. Did we succeed in that way? And did we have a story to tell that aligned with the mission? Could we find a buyer who could bring that forward, find someone who cared about the product we had built and who might find utility in it in a way that would align with what our clients care about? And the reality is that we're this is <laughs> we are living in an unprecedented time. There is a global pandemic and a great deal of economic uncertainty. And taking care of our staff was really important to us. And so how can we optimize for what happens to our staff, what happens to our clients, what happens to our our mission and the product itself, and what happens to our investors, of course, because they gave us all this money that we've been um, taking good care of and trying to deploy in the best possible ways. And so that was that was how we made that decision and and the structure that we used to consider offers. But I think it it was from the beginning being aware that at some point we would have an exit and being intentional about what we wanted that to look like and and what would leave everyone feeling like uh, it was time well spent. Let me ask a couple basic questions about where you were then in the summer of 2020. How big was the staff? How much money was left? Were you in a position where you were burning money month to month? Yeah, I think to tell that story, it would be helpful to step back a little bit to after the midterms and to share a little bit about our journey coming out of 2018. We had worked with the Analyst Institute in 2018 to test the efficacy of relational organizing. We saw that we made a pretty significant impact in key races like Sean Caston in Illinois 6th, for example. We had reason to believe we were pretty instrumental in, in a couple races, which was great. But we started to see an interest in fighting disinformation online and began to shift our rhetoric away from strictly relational organizing into a broader scope that would encompass online organizing more broadly. That also was triggered by this interest we'd had kind of peak up uh, above the, the table in 2018 from advocacy groups saying, hey, we also do organizing. Can we please use your product? We fielded all these inquiries from nonprofits and decided to raise our that next round of funding Michael talked about in 20 heading into 2019 was really to to open up the scope of our work and the market that we were serving to work beyond campaigns and try to build a sustainable business. And so that became really important to us starting in the off cycle year. We also committed to working with nonpartisan and bipartisan clients who were advocating to build a more participatory democracy. That was really important to us and signaled a, a slight shift in our North Star of what exactly we were doing this for. So in 2019, in the off cycle, we spent a lot of time strengthening our infrastructure, speeding up our processing time, making sure that the tech we were using and selling was ahead of the curve. Super unsexy stuff that was really important for the longevity of the business. Our product team spent a lot of time focusing on research, which basically enabled us to put out a more user-friendly version of the app during the primaries. And that was important to us because the first couple years of our business, we really built 
without a whole lot of testing. And we got a lot of feedback <laughs> about ways that it could be more intuitive. Um, and we were thinking about how can we lessen the burden on customer success, lessen the burden on organizers as individuals doing trainings and sort of distribute the organizing work and empower individuals to be organizers. And we shifted our focus mostly to nonprofits, to groups like Fair Fight and Supermajority. We hired a sales team to move in to the nonprofit market. We continue to work with some electoral candidates, mostly presidential primary candidates, Kamala Harris, Andrew Yang, Joe LeBrand, Biden. But we focus really on, on nonprofits. And that was important to us because we realized that the relational organizing is really a longer term play than campaigns have the space to do. So if we're thinking about movement building and real impact, it will take more time. So we um, entered 2020 with a lot of national nonprofit clients. So we had like Every Town for Gun Safety, the Human Rights Campaign, Color of Change, Protect Our Winters. We joined the BlackBod Social Good Startup Challenge in January of 2020, which was just another network and community really focused on the nonprofit sector. In the spring of 2020, we had about 10 employees overall, I would say. Uh, we had lots of clients. We had some revenue and some runway. We didn't have any more or less runway than we'd had throughout the business. You had extended your runway by raising more money. And by getting more clients, both. Yep. And but it sounded like a lot of the, a higher percentage of the money that you're spending is coming from the raise. I'm not sure. So we were like our last raise really was to build into the nonprofit market with that sort of growth mentality. So yes, I would say it enabled probably one of our sales hires. What were your yearly sales approximately in 2020? I don't know that we can talk about that. It's not something we've been public for. Over sure. a million? Yeah. Yeah. Over 2 million? <laughs> well, I, I'm just trying to get a sense of the scope. Overall, like we grew at some point to have a, a couple dozen staffers and a couple million dollars a year in revenue. I think that our very strong desire was to build a sustainable business and to make it so that we were not taking more investment because we wanted to build something that would last and continue to have an impact, honestly, beyond any of the founders. You've mentioned there were other players in the space. There was Sang at Out Outreach Circle now. Uh, there was Outvote. Uh, that's Nassim. I've talked to both of them on the podcast. How were you doing up against them when you both were pitching the same client? It makes a big difference in how you think about your future, right? Absolutely. I mean, I think that as we kind of move deeper into selling nonprofits and advocacy, we were doing less direct competition. And when we did compete with them directly, you know, we all had a very similar core feature set, right? Where it's like, okay, you know, it's a volunteer engagement piece of software. You can do some relational organizing. I think that, you know, we had each kind of gone in different product directions a little bit, like saying had, had deeper integrations with email. We had kind of a deeper product focus on, um, the organizer and the dashboard that they would use and the community that they could create with supporters. Um, I think Nassim had more gone down the route of like gamification and 
like user generated content. And so a lot of times, you know, if we were all on the same pitch, one of those things would make more sense to the buyer or the program they're running where they're like, yeah, you know, like we have a strong culture of organizing or like we have a strong culture of like communicating via email or like we're really interested in gamification and that would help them kind of make the decision. You know, the political tech world is not that big, right? Like we would, we would come up against them um, in pitches, not infrequently, but also like, you know, as we were kind of thinking about how we wanted to grow, we wanted to be around, you know, for 2024 and 2028, like we wanted the kind of innovations that we pioneered to continue to be meaningful. And even though we had what we felt like was a good growth trajectory, we didn't feel like we were like, you know, hitting exponential growth. You weren't dominant. Exactly. You were in a fight for a, not a gigantic. T- we were in a fight for like a small piece of a pie. <laughs> and, and not the biggest pie. And and I think it's noteworthy to say that, you know, Outreach Circle also sold recently. I mean, at least two of the three of you that were in this relational organizing, which was kind of innovation to have it as a separate company, as a separate thing, like relational organizing in a certain sense has been there since Abraham Lincoln or whatever. But I was always in fear of the size of the market that I was in. Like when I have every single congressional race using my stuff, where do I go? You know, and and it's always been like, you know, you go down, you go up, you go sideways, you keep pursuing other markets and you try to present other tools alongside what you have. The nature of the thing is if you've already decided I'm only working with progressives or Democrats or progressive nonprofits or whatever, it's not unlimited. And that is part of the challenge of building a company in this space, right? Yeah. And I think that, you know, when we were um, kind of considering acquisition, you know, that was a huge driver in thinking about that decision, right? And what we had also seen is that clients were hungry for simpler solutions, right? Like relational organizing, awesome. Having like 12 tools, not awesome. (laughs) Especially if you have a staff of one or two. How do you have a, a tech stack when you're a campaign that involves multiple vendors it's so hard to adopt and employ multiple things, especially when they're not natively integrated, right? Yeah. And for for people whose core job is organizing, they're not inherently technologists, right? And so the process of making it all fit together is quite complex. And I think um, when Sangeeth rebranded from Voter Circle to Outreach Circle and put forward a platform, that was part of the problem that he was trying to solve. Outvote came at it from a different direction, building a peer-to-peer comms tool alongside the relational. That was really impactful, I think, in helping them win some contracts um, where we didn't offer any type of like peer-to-peer texting tool as part of our work. And we actually spent a long time considering if we were going to do that. And we decided that our core value proposition was around relationship building, around community, and around ultimately what this industry right now calls relational organizing. 
One thing that I didn't ask you about, but I know is part of your story, is that you had acquired uh, maybe three different entities along the way. Can you just mention what they were and why and how it worked out? Sure. Yeah, we um, really were introduced to all three of them through one of our investors. And who was that? This was Dimitri Melhorn. Okay. Yeah, I've had him on the show. I know him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And so two of them were in 2018. There was a company called Says We, and there was a company called Make It Personal. And they were both kind of exploring digital volunteer engagement, relational, relationship mapping. And they were both kind of nascent. And I think, you know, Dimitri in particular is, as you know from having him on the show, like his goal is. How do we win elections? <laughs> How do we beat Trump? <laughs> How do we beat Trump? Um, and so he was like, great, you know, good start. Um, you're not going to get this to scale in the next whatever, like six months. Um, so, you know, if you are amenable, I think it'd be better for you to kind of roll up this technology into what the folks at Tuesday have built. And so that's what we did. And then, you know, with, with, vote with me. Um, that was post 2018. You know, we, we had already started thinking about at that point, you know, how do we want to grow our offering and team was really built in a B2B way, right? Are we, we're selling to organizations, we're selling to, um, campaigns and vote with me was built in a direct to consumer way where it's like, you know, straight to end users in a way that was much better from an end user user interface perspective. And so, you know, we felt like we could be a really good home for that technology. We could make sure that it was up and running in 2020, which we did. And we could also learn from it to make team better and incorporate some of the things that they did really well, which, which we also did. So we were absolutely lucky to have those components kind of come under the Tuesday company umbrella and make us you know that much stronger but it was definitely weird from a pure business perspective like n- none of them were you know a play to increase our revenue they were all strategically important for increasing our impact i think the vote with me acquisition was absolutely about increasing our impact strategically. It was also a strategic move in our market, um, which at that point had become much more crowded than it was when we began. We had a relationship. I I knew the founders both at Civics Analytics and also the uh, New Data Project folks. So I had a good understanding of what they were building. Their very strong passion for democracy um, and they really spent a lot of time testing. They focused on how do we build a product that people will use, that will see that hockey stick of growth from paid acquisition, but also from users getting excited about having the opportunity to message people uh, based on their voter history. And so we saw that as a way for us to accelerate our learning and our growth because they had 
done a great job documenting all of this research. And so um, we acquired Vote With Me and then spent a couple days with the leadership team learning all of the lessons that they had compiled since 2016 and thinking through everything from like, what color the product is in the app <laughs> to how we are using data, how we are displaying information, whether or not we're giving information back to clients, how do we earn trust? We started to think really critically about privacy and security in a public way, which was important as users got more savvy. Uh, we got a lot of questions about what we were doing with their data. And I think our conversations with that uh, those founders and that team were really impactful in how we thought about protecting privacy and honoring users. Do you think that that experience in having been on your on that side, on the acquirer side, helped in thinking about things when you were then putting yourself out on the on the want to be acquired side? Yes, absolutely. I think it was helpful in honestly, and from a confidence perspective, um, as you're going into negotiations with prospective acquirers, you've been on their side of the table. You have a sense of the kinds of things they're looking at in terms of data from how your product is used, whether they want to take any of your employees and what that might look like, how they are going to value the company. I, I should say, you know, Michael raised these three organizations that we acquired. We had others that came to us and asked if we were interested. And we ran a, some form of a diligence process and decided it wasn't a good fit. All of those experiences collectively were important primers <laughs> for our own acquisition. How many employees, if any, did you pick up through the, that process? We didn't. At least the New Data Project was winding its operations down and their employees knew that before the election. So they were... Anyone who was full-time employed there had already gotten another job. Uh, there were some folks that we would have loved to take, honestly, but they were employed elsewhere by the time we were talking. Because vote with me was Mikey Dickerson, right? And, yes. you know, he's a talented guy, also a guest on the show. And I had talked to him when that was a going concern and he was trying to raise real money to, to expand on it and was able to go on to other things. Yeah. And we were able to keep a relationship with the folks that built Vote With Me and, and you know, with with everything that we ended up acquiring. No one came on as a full-time employee, but everyone stayed involved to one degree or another as either a consultant or an advisor so that we were able to call them in when we needed their help or wanted their advice. Um, and that was that was really important. I mean, one of the things that is a perennial concern in our progressive political tech ecosystem is the loss of the intellectual capital. So like, it's, it's kind of heartening to me to hear that people, including you folks, are finding ways to keep some stuff alive by, you know, accreting things together. Let's attack now the, the sale process. Like, how did you go about this? Did you try to get an auction going? What was it like? Yeah, we took the initial call with the entity that came to us in June. And is that the one you ultimately sold to? No. Okay. So we had an initial conversation and they were um, interested in making a couple of acquisitions ahead of some strategic moves that they were making in their market. Um, what type of acquisition was still being determined by their board? And so they were doing 
doing really the initial phases of their exploration. And that gave us time to do our own diligence process and consider what a successful exit would look like and decide if that, in fact, was the right time for us to consider it. And so in July, we had a series of difficult conversations where we decided that it was not the time we had envisioned that we would be looking for an exit, but actually a really good strategic move in that moment. And so we talked to lots of mentors and advisors, and I was actually really adamant that we should hire someone to help us through the acquisition process because we had never done it before. And this is something that you can only do once. And so Michael um, did a search (laughs) and found a couple prospective bankers for us to work with. I interviewed them. We selected one um, and he helped us build out, or we helped him, I suppose, build out a huge list of prospective acquirers. There are organizations that we had existing relationships with, organizations that looked similar to the types of companies that in our space, but maybe were farther afield. So, you know, we thought about companies that we had partnered with already, BlackBot, NGP Van, uh, Salesforce, those kinds of organizations, but also those are all CRMs. So what other CRMs exist in the world? Could we see that perhaps there's a path for us to help them? We also thought about the kind of partner entities that we had built complementary software with. So we, yeah, set up something of an auction and we had one offer and set out to get a handful more and did, and then uh, sat down in the early fall and, and looked at the options and considered against the criteria we had set up. How can we do well by our clients, our staff, our investors, and our vision? And then picked the, the entity that we felt would be the best place to carry this forward and did a, a month-long, super intense <laughs> diligence process with them and and after signing an LOI. Um, and at the end of that month, we officially sold our assets. So what did you do right and what did you do wrong, looking back on it? One of the things that was really smart, honestly, in my opinion, was the, that structure. Because it, it made the decision, for me at least, a lot easier. Once you get into conversation with founders, other founders, other leadership teams at other companies. There were some people who maybe we had a nice connection with. We believed in the work they were doing. We could see potential for our product, helping their revenue in the ways that they wanted it to, or for our business model to help their business model. But when we had this criteria set in place and we were really looking across all of it, it made it a lot easier to to see one company that was a pretty obvious fit. I think one of the things that's interesting is that that company is an organization that we got to know about a year and a half earlier. They are currently operating in stealth mode and have been for about two years. When they first started building their product, I heard about what they were doing and reached out to the CEO and asked to have coffee. We sat down at a coffee shop in DC and he shared their plans. It looked remarkably similar to this vision that we had pitched investors on and dreamed up in 2017. 
We had done one piece of this bigger thing and he is basically building this bigger thing and we can be a piece of that puzzle. I'm not clear having only interviewed a related person and read an article or two. What is the vision there as you understand it? You know, we are talking sort of under embargo at the moment, like this episode won't come out (laughs) well until that company is kind of come out of stealth mode, which is not something, you know, like a term that I knew when I was only in stealth mode accidentally. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think that the best way to kind of describe it is, you know, they're on a mission to give everyone organizing superpowers in kind of service of building a more just and equitable world, which is a very fancy way of saying that organizing is hard and organizing tech is often very fractured, as is the data that goes into technology and supports technology and comes out of the use of technology. And it's often really difficult to put together a stack of things that you want to use and support it with data and figure out how to integrate it, let alone like figure out which one of those is working well relative to which other ones. This organization is working on building kind of a unified platform with intelligent data and integrated software that can hopefully make it make it really easy for people small organizations, large organizations to plug in and and have an impact in a way that, you know, doesn't require a thick user manual. Can I ask one question on that? Because there was a word in what you said that that concerned me, set up a little bit of a red flag, and maybe I'm which is that when you said everyone. So you have been, as I understand it, selling only to Democrats and and some bipartisan, nonpartisan organizations. What is their market? Yeah, this was kind of touched on in in the article that recently came out and someone sent me an email and they said, what's the difference between bipartisan and nonpartisan? And we are nonpartisan. means the intention is not to work with either party's structure directly, um, but to instead work with nonpartisan advocacy organizations and nonprofits. Does that mean like the NRA? Does that mean the Oath Keepers? Yeah, that's a great question. We're looking at everything through a lens of, you know, what creates a more just and equitable world. And so there are some red lines where, you know, you're not trying to work with the Oath Keepers or, you know, any kind of explicitly controversial causes but they are really interested in you know trying to build a collaborative middle ground for improving democracy and so anything that you know you might think to yourself wow that seems like very divisive and like not improving towards democracy would probably be out this is still in stealth for a reason and one of the things that's kind of being worked on is like how do we take the sentence I just said, which which I agree with, and that's why I'm, one of the reasons why I'm excited to work there, and make it actionable, right? And have a f- framework by which you can objectively evaluate. It's a tough thing. One of the things that Michael touched on in his explanation of what the acquirer is doing and what they're building, I think is important to pull out. We 
originally built Team as a B2B tool because it was by organizers, for organizers. Organizers work for organizations. Those organizations can buy our product. It made a a really nice business model for us. Um, Acquiring Vote With Me was an effort to expand that into the direct-to-consumer space because the place where direct-to-consumer and B2B meet is the sweet spot where you'll really be able to scale giving individuals organizing superpowers and saying, yes, you can connect with this nonprofit that's doing work that you care about, but also you could just show up in your community and, you know, set up a a little stand on your street corner with a food bank in it and tell other people that they can get food there. And you can do all the, the organizing and all the structuring yourself. So we were very much uh, bootstrapped, raising money, trying to cover our costs, working in this sort of tight timeline to build this really big long-term vision. Um, One of the benefits that we have in joining this larger organization is that they have long-term philanthropic funding. And that funding is being put to building out both sides of this model simultaneously and figuring out how to do it most effectively, which means really rigorous testing. And it's testing like I have never seen in this ecosystem. When we first started talking with them and and understanding the kind of work they do and the empirical approach that they were taking, I sort of smiled and nodded and said, okay, I understand testing. I got it. The first time I went to a meeting with the person who runs the research at this organization, I was absolutely blown away. And it's not just one person running research. It's a whole team of people who are very talented researchers from academia. They've run labs. They're extremely accomplished. And they're bringing that rigorous effort to the organizing space. And because they have this um, long-term philanthropic funding, they're in a place where they don't have to prove that what they're currently doing works. They have to figure out what works most effectively and then invest heavily into that. Where will they fit into the market, would you say? You might consider like enterprise software that is being sold as kind of a holistic solution for everything an organization would do end-to-end, from data to testing to organizing to even consulting services. There's another piece that is not sold at all, but is available to consumers, um, and then everything in between. And so the... So it's a big, ambitious platform. Very. Yeah. Yep. It's a relationship. <laughs> um, and it is almost... The bite is almost too big out of this apple. Like it is... It, and that's part of what's inspiring. And, you know, they... They part of honestly the um, opportunity for us to join them was that they wanted all of our staff and they wanted our employees because we've spent years testing and iterating and building some piece of this puzzle and they have a lot of knowledge about how to do this. I think it is a really audacious goal, but it is reasonable if you pull the right people together and um, come at it in a strategic way. So. In accepting their offer over what I take were other offers, how much was it like the price? How much was it the mission? How much was it it these other factors? 
we had to kind of balance what we thought would, you know, was most important from all four criteria. And we felt like, you know, this was actually the best offer across all of them. It was certainly the strongest, I think, in mission, where a lot of our other offers were not nearly as strong. It was interesting going and talking to, you know, some CRM companies that are owned by a private equity firm, for example. And it's like very clear that the, you know, all of the evaluatory criteria is revenue and revenue growth. Whereas, you know, for for the, this organization, a lot of the evaluatory criteria was, you know, does the Tuesday company help us to build something that we feel like the nonprofit ecosystem needs and something that will contribute to much more interested in your product and your product building team. Yeah. And also, yeah. you know, our ability to affect change. And and that, that was really meaningful to us um, across dimensions. You know, I think it, even for employees, like if employees are going to have a job at one place and a job at another place, you know, where, when we talk to someone, do they want to work and what do they want to work on as part of it too? I think it's also the mission piece is the one that cut across all of those criteria. If we want to take care of our clients, we are helping them build a more participatory democracy. We're helping them advance really important legislation um, and make a more equitable world. And so if we sold the Tuesday company to an organization that wanted the software primarily for fundraising, that is a really different value proposition that changes what we are offering to the customers. It also wasn't as appealing to our employees. Of course, investors care about a financial return, um, but our investors also made this investment because they believed in our mission and they wanted the product to find a home that would help push that forward. So that the time we had spent and the money they had spent on the Tuesday company would essentially continue to advance those goals. My experience is when one company buys another in a situation like this, there's usually a mix of cash, potentially stock in the enterprise that you're entering, maybe like an earnout, like an amount that has to do with performance later on. What was the mix for you guys? I don't think this is something that we can talk about, unfortunately, but I appreciate you asking. The response that we got from our investors was very positive across the board. A lot of like gratitude for what we built and how it ended. Well, a lot of times when you've invested in something like this, you kind of wave goodbye to the money. You're hopeful that it will do what you want it to do. If it comes back in half or in full or multiplied by eight, you're real happy. That's the nature of an impact investment. That's the nature of a lot of investments. For you guys to navigate a complicated market and come out the other side as an important part of a ambitious enterprise is a is a really great result. I assume that you're both going to continue with it. Is that true? I'm continuing with it. Uh, uh, Shola's getting out. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, no, I'm not. I will definitely continue to advise and support the work that they're doing for a long time. And I'm actually supporting a number of other people and organizations in this space right now. As an advisor or as a consultant or... Yeah. <laughs> was that by your choice? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's something that 
I'm really excited about doing, honestly, I loved building this business and I loved selling this business. And to my great surprise, entrepreneurship is something that... You got the bug now. I got the bug. (laughs) And so having the chance to support other organizations in this ecosystem and founders more broadly in the tech space is super exciting to me. Tell me a little bit about your feelings at this point. How do you feel about the transaction? How do you feel about the path? How do you feel about the future? I mean, I I just remember I was a field organizer in the Clinton campaign with like no job prospects post-2016. And if you had told me that I would found a company and help lead it to work with the D-Trip to take back the house and to work with the clients we've been lucky enough to work with in the electoral and in the nonprofit and advocacy side and like be part of, you know, winning the white house in 2020. Like I would, I would not have believed you. I would not have thought that was even like remotely plausible. I am incredibly proud and, and of the work that we've done and the work that our team has done and like, just really grateful that we've had this opportunity even to tell me now you, myself, and the team that, that we've built has the chance to take everything we've learned and, you know, create Team 2.0 and integrate it into a wider, smarter system and, like, build the next generation of these tools. An amazing and opportunity and one that is rare and unique and, and that I'm really, really, really grateful for. So, I mean, it's definitely an emotional thing. I mean, there's a lot of your heart and soul that gets tied up into founding something. But I, I think that, you know, I really can't feel anything more than, than just this huge sense of, of gratitude for, for the journey we've been able to have and for the journey that's, that's even still in front of us. I mean, something like this, Shola, I'm gonna, I know you're going to have something to say on that, but there's something absolutely transformative about what happens to your career, to your choices, just by the process of building something and learning what you learn doing that. In moving into a position of leadership, in being treated as a leader, in leading uh, both of you, you know, an organization, you come out a different person in so many ways. If there isn't a good reason financially to do something like this, maybe there is a good reason to do it for the other kinds of growth that you go through. Shola, what, what, how are you feeling? I also feel an enormous amount of gratitude. And I think that I am learning to recognize that I'm really proud of what we've done. I'm proud of the team that we built. I'm proud of the impact that we had. I mean, we set out to help Democrats win elections. And we did that for sure. We also fundamentally changed the lives of tens of thousands of people. In the spring, one of our advocacy organizations pushed forward a measure in Jacksonville, Florida, that protects the workplace rights of some 50,000 LGBTQ individuals in that city. That is huge. And the ripple effect of that kind of impact is really powerful. One of the things I'm not particularly good at is taking time to acknowledge successes. And I think hiring employees and leading, building out 
teams, which I did a couple of times at Tuesday, I forced myself to celebrate small wins and be really intentional in building that into our culture. And I'm now forcing myself to take some time to think about everything that we've just done and you know, feel a, a debt of gratitude, I think, to my business partners and also to our mentors and our advisors. There are so many people who we couldn't have done this without. And I think even like at the super micro level in January of 2017, Michael and I moved to Chicago to try to test this out on a aldermanic race. And we lived in the spare bedrooms in an apartment of a mentor who I had met on the Clinton campaign. We couldn't have gotten here without Dave, but we also couldn't have gotten here without uh, Marlon Marshall, who introduced us to Betsy and the Higher Ground Lab community. We couldn't have gotten here without uh, <laughs> without like a well, someone. Let's, who- let's be clear that the pivotal things that you, the two pivotal moments that you've never given credit to were the appearances of either of you on this podcast. I really kind of a little bit, a little pissed off to not be cited here, but go ahead. Sure. Honestly, it was really important. I think that I am most proud of was coming on this podcast with people who were our clients, because I think it gave an opportunity. You know, one of the things that's um, hard for me as a founder is to talk about my accomplishments or the work that we've done. It's one another place that I've grown a lot. Um, because if you don't say it, of course, no one else will. <laughs> um, but having the chance to talk about our work and then give a spotlight to the people who are actually doing it was really, really useful for us from a business perspective. And also, I think from a, a brand perspective, right? It's not just us talking. It's people speaking about how our software impacted their program. And um, that was really great. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs) My suspicion is having gotten the bug, you'll, you'll start something else uh, down the road. And you know how Steve Jobs went from Apple, his next one was called Next. I don't know if you're aware of that, but another computer Mm -hmm. was kind of cool. So I suggest you just, maybe you should put Wednesday aside so that you (laughs) Just in case you need to move on through the week. Yeah. You know, I think I have spent the last several months really thinking about what I want to be when I grow up. For me, it comes down to the key pieces that we had at the Tuesday company and that I honestly I see um, at our acquirer also, which is that we had a really fantastic team. We were running after a outrageous goal, like truly audacious <laughs> challenge that's what gets me excited. That's why I want to wake up in the morning. It's why I worked nights and weekends. I spent a year as a nomad. (laughs) Um, It's part of the thing that inspires me. And I think you're right. (laughs) Well, I I am very cognizant that a, we've gone for an hour or 50 minutes, but also that we have hit a point that's very lovely, which is it's nice to have a chance to tell your story and to celebrate it a bit and to end on that kind of positivity. We could go in deeper into many things. We should probably say, you know, take our winnings, capture the audio <laughs> and, and, and get together again if you want to extend it uh, after things are more public. Maybe the only other thing as like a, a soundbite for you <laughs> is 
that Michael and I talked about, we're really proud with a little bit of distance of the impact we've made on this industry and realizing where the world of organizing was when we began and what, you know, the health of our small D democracy. I think the community that we built, the ways that we trained and supported people doing good work will have an impact for a long time. And that's something that anyone who's been a part of this with us on this journey can be really proud of. And I'm really grateful for. You want to have a final word, Michael? No, I think that was good. <laughs> I think that was an excellent final word. Yeah, it um, was. Yeah. You know, I'd love to get together with you for, for a meal when we're all vaccinated and chew the fat some more. I really appreciate how generous you guys were with your time and with your openness where you could be. Um, mm -hmm. I honestly feel like that this is going to be a very helpful episode for other people and will be part of your contribution to the space and, and mine. That was Shola and Michael. They are at helmteam.us. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.